Hamas declares victory as Israel and Hamas reach a ceasefire agreement, which seems somewhat odd. When up to this point, the whole narrative that we've been hearing is that Hamas is fighting with stones and Israel has these nuclear weapons and an incredible military force, that Israel is the aggressor. And look at the disproportionate force that Israel has used against Hamas, resulting in the, the loss of hundreds of lives, women and children in the Gaza Strip. Every argument that I have heard up to this point was that Israel— is clobbering Gaza, and because of that, Israel is wrong, and because Gaza has lost more lives, they are right. They are in the right. And so when Gaza comes out and declares this victory over Israel, it's somewhat counterintuitive if you look at it from a loss-of-life standpoint, which is what has been argued up to this point. But it really exposes the true nature of this war, the true battle that was being fought, not just between Israel and Hamas, but the battle that was being fought for your mind via social media. And that is the battle of perception. Hey, it's Lucas Grobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Grobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Thanks for being with me on the show today. Why should we even care that there is a ceasefire? Why should we even care? What's so What's so important about the fact that, that Hamas in Gaza is declaring a decisive victory over Israel? Well, it's because this whole battle has been a battle about perception, a battle about yours and mine's perception of how we see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's all about the perception of how we see Israel. Because if they can win the perception war, they, as in Hamas, can finally defeat Israel. That would only be a matter of time. And this is important because of the methodologies that are used to radicalize and weaponize social media and media networks to change and shift the hearts in the minds of people. When all of a sudden, we, we move from many people being pretty either neutral or pro-Israel to all of a sudden there being widespread anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, which is now a conflation of the two. They're like, oh, it's, I'm not being anti-Semitic. I'm just being anti-Zionism, which is it's a total changing of terms to justify anti-Semitism, to justify a, a push for the extinction of the Jewish people. It's by flipping and changing terms. All of a sudden, we see people openly quoting Hitler on social media and getting praised for it. We see people posting uh, Nazi, uh, Nazi rhetoric and implying that Israel has become equivalent to Nazi Germany, which is on its face absurd. But these are the narratives that have won on have won in culture right now. It's the winning narrative. And that is what this war was all about. Who can win the narrative? Who can win the minds and the hearts of people? The public sentiment. With this, we see the way that the left, because it really is a function of the left, the way that the left has weaponized media and the tactics that they use to move people who are pretty pro-Israel 
to being anti-Semitic in a number of months. And we're going to break that down a little bit later in the episode. And it's something that we need to be aware about because these, these tools and these strategies are being used against us, not just in this conflict, but in many other conflicts and many other uh, issues, agendas that are being pushed. And it's a very wise, a very uh, clever, shrewd uh, tactic that is used in many different scenarios. It's used in, in sales. It's used in persuasion strategies. It's used in communication. And it's not inherently evil. It's not inherently wrong. It's the way that people are persuaded to a point, but it's being used in, a, in my opinion, a very deceptive way to skew the facts, to, to implant a cognitive dissonance and an, an implicit bias and a confirmation bias against what is actually happening, especially when it comes to switching and flipping terms upon its head. But let's move back to see Hamas declaring victory, saying that we have this victory over Israel in this ceasefire. Now, there, there is some truth to it, I think, in that Israel was not able to completely shut down the hundreds of missiles that were sent from Gaza into Israel day after day. I believe over 3,000, well over 3,000 missiles were sent from Gaza to Israel, and they were not able to completely stop them. So there is a, a level of victory that could be declared there. But everything that people have been saying about this conflict on, on, the, on the social media platforms that I'm present on and in the communities that I follow it's that Israel is as a Nazi organization. Israel is committing ethnic cleansing against Arabs. That Israel is, is disproportionately killing women and children at will, intentionally trying to destroy schools, intentionally trying to wipe out the young, which is an absolute lie. Because we know that Hamas is hiding. They hide their, their caches of weapons in schools. They, they hide their headquarters in the press buildings. They hide their, their command centers in civilian populations so that it's extremely difficult to strike at them. And when they do, most times, they will... They will release what's called a, a knock bomb on top of the house, and they'll even call the custodians of certain buildings to say that, hey, we're going to be bombing this building. Make sure you get everyone out of there. There was a, a conversation broadcasted on Sky News. I couldn't find the exact clip, but the conversation went like this. The Israeli military said, listen, we're going to bomb the building. The Palestinian building supervisor said, you want to bomb? Bomb whatever you want. Israel, no brother, we need you to do everything we can so that you don't die. The supervisor says, we want to die. Israel says, but you have a responsibility to your children's lives. If we need to die, then we die. Israel responds, God forbid, God forbid, why do you want to die? And finally, Palestine responds, this is how we reveal your cruelty. This is how we reveal your cruelty. The whole purpose of this war and the escalation 
there there were things that led up to it. There's you know failed elections on Nehnahu part to 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 gather together a government. The the PA failed to have an election, which Hamas looked like they were going to win. So there's lots of failure in government, which a lot of people believe that is what led to the escalation using what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah, which is a perfectly legal civil dispute that had gone over a course of years of the the people who were evicted being told, you need to either start paying rent or you will be evicted. And they fought it in court for years and finally it came to head. That was used as, as a trigger point to f- push further escalation. And we've gone over this in the episode. But the underlying battle that was trying to be won was a, a war of perception so that that Hamas could reveal and persuade the nations to believe that Israel is a cruel and unjust nation. That if we can have loss of civilian lives, if we can show women and children dying in Gaza, then we can win the war. Then we can win the war. It is a propaganda war. Back in 1970, Abu Ayand, the PLO head of security, said this, if one could succeed in changing public opinion in the West, the overthrow of Zionism would be just a matter of time. And that is what was happening. That is what has happened in this last two weeks. There was a push to change the public opinion in the West concerning Israel and the, and Israel's right to exist and changing the opinion of Hamas as what is explicitly a terrorist organization. Explicitly in Hamas's charter, it is we want to ethnically cleanse Palestine from Jews. That is their explicit, explicit explanation of why they exist. And this is what's happening. It's the flipping and turning of phrases. So all of a sudden we see Israel being accused of ethnic cleansing. Why? Well, because of what's happening in East Jerusalem, Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah, which the history of that, the, the documentation of that is quite clear. It's quite clear that it went through all the courts in Israel up to the, the Supreme Court of Israel, where there's Jews who have deeds to the property from the 1800s. From 1887, I believe. In 1948, all the Jews were ethnically cleansed from East Jerusalem as Transjordan took over East Jerusalem and the new lines were drawn in 1948. All the Jews were left. They seized Jewish property. They built then refugee housing for uh, Palestinian Arabs to live on. And the, the Jordanian custodian of enemy property said, you can live here, but you have to pay rent. They paid rent. 1967 war happens where again, Transjordan and Egypt, uh, Syria, all turned, Lebanon all turned against Israel to try to wipe Israel off the map. And what happens? Israel wins back East Jerusalem. They say to those living there, you can remain living in these homes. Just got to pay rent. 1982 rolls around. They say, hey, Here's a lease agreement. They signed the lease agreement saying we will pay rent. And then a few years later, they say, nope, we're not going to pay rent anymore, which then led to a lengthy legal case. There's documents. There's, it's, it's a clear cut and dry case. 
But now it's being flipped as, well, this is ethnic cleansing. There's 1.8 million Arabs inside the green line of Israel, Israeli-Palestinian Arabs, who live there peacefully in mixed cities. They're allowed to live there. They're allowed to vote. They're allowed to marry. They're allowed to marry people who are Jews. And yet, in Gaza, how many Jews live in Gaza? Zero. Zero Jews live in Gaza. In fact, in 2005, Israel pulled out all of their troops. They pulled out all, all Jews all in, in settlements that did exist in Gaza, everything out, and gave it all over to Hamas. Hamas owns and runs Gaza. If an Arab were to sell property to a Jew in Gaza, it's the capital penalty. It's a penalty of death. So you tell me which side actually has a desire for ethnic cleansing. Which side wants to see a, a, a people group totally wiped out of a region? Now, a lot of this conversation, the, these debates that have been having, they center around whether or not Israel has the right to exist and the occupation of the West Bank. Many people say there's, there's no possibility for peace. There's no possibility to stand down. There's, there's no way we're going to stop resisting until, until we have some things met, until Israel pulls out of the West Bank and gives over authority to the Palestinians, which there's been many offers on that table, even all the way back in 1967. In 1967, after the Six-Day War, there was the, the they, they all went to Khartoum for a, a peace treaty agreement, the Khartoum Resolution. And at the Khartoum Resolution, they said to Transjordan, we will give you back the West Bank, maybe just some minor uh, border adjustments, but we'll give you, you this all back if you say that you recognize us as a country and you make peace. And what do they say? What does Transjordan say? They say, no peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no negotiation with Israel. That was their response, 1967. And again, 2008, nearly a very similar deal where they're giving back the West Bank. Jerusalem's going to become an international city, and they walk away from the table. Now, the, the argument, the fair argument that is made uh, on the other side is that, well, we we wanted a port, we wanted access to water, and that wasn't given. And so I understand that there was argument on the other side of why they walked away. But nonetheless, Israel has shown itself time and time again willing to come to the table and actually give the West Bank, all the way back to 1967, give the West Bank back to Transjordan or the Palestinians for them to create their own government and their own state under some very simple conditions. One, Make peace with us, recognize us. Make peace with us and recognize us. But when we dive deep into these conversations, the heart of the matter always comes back to this, that Israel does not have a right to exist, that Israel is doing ethnic cleansing, that Israel is an apartheid state, when really it is the exact thing they're, they're accusing Israel, Hamas. It is, it is not it is not Palestine per se, but it is Hamas propaganda. Hamas propaganda that has been smart and clever 
to reframe everything, to accuse Israel of the very things that they do, to accuse Israel of the very things that they do, ethnic cleansing in apartheid state. Because if Hamas had its way, I mean, the, the things that I, I see posted are just mind-boggling. Where I, I see maps of the entire Arab world and say, look how much land we have, look how powerful we have. If we all just united, we could wipe Israel off the map. These are the, the explicit things, statements, and calls to action that are commonplace, are commonplace, is that Israel needs to be wiped off the map. That in and of itself, that is ethnic cleansing. But when, but what they have been able to do, it goes back to this quote from 1970. It's they, they won this battle because they changed the West's opinion of Israel. And they did that through very smart and calculated propaganda points. They did that through very smart communication through social media. And this has been a a tactic and a tool that has been used many times before for probably millennials where they, one, they, they mess with word language. They change the definition of words. And I, I hate to make the, the equivalent, but BLM did a very similar thing and not just BLM, but the anti-racist movement. It moved from did racism exist in this instance to how did racism exist? Because racism always exists. It moves from if you don't see color, if you're colorblind, then you are racist, but you need to be anti-racist because there's no such thing as being a non-racist. It's, it's the same plane with the word terms. And here, as we've discussed, it's this flipping of, of language. It's the flipping of language of saying, no, Israel is a Nazi party. Israel is akin to Nazism. To mask, and as they are propagating Nazi sympathies, right? What, I mean, it is so shocking what I'm seeing. People, people posting images of, a, of an Israeli soldier and then looking in the mirror and seeing that he's actually a Nazi soldier. And then followed up by rhetoric saying, well, you know, this just shows that Israel is just as bad as the Nazis and they should be exterminated. They should not have the right to exist in Israel. They should be sent back from to wherever they came from. Literally, it is Nazi sympathies that are being masked and anti-Semitism that's being masked by calling your opponent the very thing that you're pro, the very thing that you're sympathizing with. This is one core strategy that has been used many times, not just in, in this conflict, but in the conflict that we've seen in, in India as well, in conflicts that we have seen uh, in America in recent days. It's the, the flipping of definitions, the flipping of terms on its head. The second way that these persuasion strategies work is that they start by triggering something deep and emotional in you. So when, when I teach on sales for marketing, I, I teach something very similar, that people buy 
based on emotion and then they justify their purchase or their buy based on data, based on points. So if I want to buy a BMW, I'm going to look at that car and I'm going to feel the prestige. I'm going to look at the what it could give me in my life. I make an emotional decision and then I look to justify my emotional decision to buy a BMW or whatever car it may be with stating, well, the the engineering is so good. It's such a great car. It will last me a long time. You name it. What has happened in this battle for the hearts and minds of people, just like in many other battles, whether it was the what we were seeing in America last year with the Black Lives Matter riots, or whether it was what we have seen happen with the global warming, uh, climate change uh, initiatives and agendas, it is the same playbook. And the playbook is this. You show a, a deeply moving emotional picture and image that causes people's emotions to get stirred up, their empathy to get stirred up, their anger to get stirred up. And then you come on the heels of that with a new set of data points. And this is a a tactic that is used through cognitive dissonance. You see a picture, you're emotionally disturbed, and now you're looking for data points. You're looking for data points to justify or help understand what is going on, and they're feeding you the exact data points you, your mind wants to find because you've already bought into something emotionally. You've already seen the horrific images of women and children dying. You're already seeing those, and you're hearing the narrative that Israel is using disproportionate force. And maybe you aren't familiar, too familiar with what's going on. I live in this region, and I, I wouldn't even say that I was ultra-familiar. I wasn't ultra-familiar with the history and, and the legal documents dating back to 1917 and what were stated in those and who the land actually belonged to. It was under the, the Ottoman Empire, the Islamic Caliphate, from years before, a hundred years before. The British took over in 1917 after the end of World War II. And when when the British did take over, Palestine, it was a region. It wasn't a nation. It was a region that included parts of Syria, that included Jordan. And then they, they split up the entire region that France had some, and they split up Lebanon was a part of the French mandate. The British mandate was was now Israel. Uh, parts of Jordan and parts of Syria that was split up into the, the British mandate and made different nation states. And Palestine was explicitly created to make a Jewish state. And they drew boundaries and lines. And the British Empire was giving government, government-owned land that the Ottoman Empire used to own that then was taken over by the British Empire and a very small percentage of private ownership happened between Arabs and Jews. And then the Jews began to migrate and began to buy land from the British Empire. And then when Israel declared itself a sovereign nation in 1948, that was not declaring all of Palestine. They were just declaring, one, their private land ownership, and two, the land that had already been allotted to the Jewish state by Britain, 
which was voted upon by the UN. Now, the Arab League of Nations walked out of that vote in protest and the very next day declared war to wipe out Israel from the map. And before that point, you, you see conflict after conflict after conflict leading up to what happened in 1984. I wasn't very familiar with all of that history. But for many who are not familiar, they begin looking, and what do they begin hearing? They hear, well, Israel is an occupier who stole the land. Israel is doing ethnic cleansing. Look what they're doing in Sheikh Jarrah. This is occupied land. They shouldn't even belong to them. They're hearing these highly emotional stories backed up by a certain narrative of points. And all of a sudden, the perception swings over from either being slightly pro-Israel with not really having a deep understanding to being deeply against Israel. Now, I, I think, and I definitely believe, and there are many other people who are out there where you can be pro-Israel and you can be pro-Palestine at the same time. But there's a difference between being pro-Palestine and being pro-Hamas. And that is a very important distinction that we need to make because Hamas is explicitly after a, a genocidal cleansing of Israel. And so I, I think that the, the position that we need to take is being anti-Hamas and pro-Palestine and pro-Israel. And that is something that you're able to reconcile. You're able to reconcile between the two because we don't know how many people in Palestine, in the West Bank, and in Gaza are actually pro-Hamas. It could be 50%. It could be 90%. It could be 12%. I don't know. I don't know those stats. But I do know that there are people who want to make peace. There are people, peacemakers who are out there, men and women, who want to stand up and see peace be made and recognize Israel as a nation. But what's been happening in, in the social media world of radicalization, ra the radicalization of media and then the radicalization of individuals, it starts slowly. It doesn't start with Israel is an apartheid state. It started months ago with Israel doesn't want to give vaccines to Palestine and Gaza. When in fact they did offer vaccines to Palestine and Gaza, but Palestine and the West Bank and Gaza turned them down. But all of a sudden, it begins to shape our perception. Like, well, why would, it, why would Israel do that? That's so strange. Then all of a sudden, we start seeing a, a video circulating of someone getting kicked out of their home. And what's that about? Well, that's so strange. Israelis are just going out and just randomly stealing people's homes. Well, that's horrible. Then we see, oh, the IDF is raiding a mosque. Well, that's horrible. And her perception begins to change, and it's one click at a time. It's moving the needle one click at a time through constant pressing and pressing and pressing, and then the narrative changes to the point where no longer is it just, oh, that's questionable. It's now Israel is, is a Nazi nation. Israel is, is an apartheid state and is seeking to ethnically cleanse all the Arabs from it, even though there's 1.8 million Arabs, Israeli, Palestinians who live inside of Israel who have all the same rights as a Jew. 
So which one is the apartheid state? Which one is after ethnic cleansing? So we must guard against these strategies because it's not just in this. We need to guard against the the emotional triggering that then leads us to false conclusions where we then become weaponized. We then become activists. We then fall into this fear, angst, and anger trap where we begin to blame the other party for the very thing that we are. And so one way, one way to do this is that when, when you are seeing a, an argument that's being leveled, whether it's online or offline in the real world, that's using a lot of high emotional points, a high emotional argument with lots of empathy and sympathy built into it. And then followed up with that is a guilt trip that says, if you do not agree with this, if you do not see my viewpoint, if you do not stand on my side of this matter, then you are a fill in the blank. If you are encountering that guilt trip and manipulation, that is a point that you should begin to take a couple steps back and say, wait a minute, I wonder what's going on here. I wonder why they are first trying to pull on my emotions and then pull on my desire to be accepted socially. Why are they then trying to guilt trip and manipulate me into boycotting something or guilt trip and manipulate me into taking a certain stance or posting something? You know, if you don't speak up, your silence is violence. I'm watching you. That sort of fear-based manipulation is one of the first signs that you should take a step back and be like, hmm, what is going on here? Which leads us to the second point. We have to remain sober-minded. We have to be able to, to see both sides, to see both arguments, to understand where the other side is coming from. Because I can under, understand that where, where the, the pro-Hamas side is coming from, especially if you're not familiar with the organization. And I've asked some people and they've admitted to me, they're like, actually, you're right. I'm not familiar with Hamas. I don't know what they stand for. I don't know what they believe. And that's coming on the heels of multiple posts being sent my way of anti-Israel propaganda. But when I ask, well, do you know, do you know what Hamas believes? Do you, do you denounce them? And it's like, well, actually, I haven't really looked at that side. I don't really know what they stand for. So, yeah, that's a good question. I probably should know. So we have to remain sober-minded. We have to be able to evaluate these emotional arguments that are being leveled in social media, whether it's about injustices that are happening in India, whether it's about global warming, whether it's about climate change, whether it's about whatever. Which, whichever the issue and whichever the side, whether it's from the far right or the far left, we have to be able to take a step back and say, wait a minute, what is the deeper agenda here? What's the deeper narrative that's being push, pushed and why? And then the third point is being people who look to control ourselves rather than to control others. 
And that's where that guilt trip and manipulation comes in. This past week, I was canceled by a number of people because I didn't line up with what, with what they thought I should, with what they believe. And when you are trying to control other people and tell other people how they need to live their lives and exert power over other people, we fall into a very dangerous place. So instead, what we ought to do is seek to control ourselves. That leads us to our Weaver and Loom section. But before we get into that, if you found this conversation helpful, one way that you can have your community grow in some of these ideas, that you can challenge the people around you, that you can you yourself grow deeper into understanding, in conversating, in building a community that thinks critically about what's going on, especially concerning what's happening between Hamas and Israel, to have a, a right perception of it, a ba- hopefully a balanced perception of it, then I would share this with your friends, with your colleagues, and then talk about it with them. Have a conversation about this with them because it will cause you to sharpen your understanding. It will cause you to have to go back and look at original sources and understand what happened in Khartoum, where Jordan essentially said, no, keep the land. We're not going to negotiate with you until you're, you're gone. And it's that is the process of us actually diving deeper to understand these things that will make us stronger as individuals and will make our communities stronger and safer from, from radicalization that seeks to come into our midst because it's the little foxes. It's the, the little bit of yeast that falls into some dough that then leavens the whole bread. It's this little bit of mixture that can ruin the whole wine. You know, it's just one or two little flies in that vat of wine that can ruin everything. And so we need to be sober-minded and guard ourselves against those things. Also, if you get value from the show, from this episode, you can give value back to the value that you receive from. And you can do that by visiting our website at lucasrobot, L-U-C-A-S-S-K, robot.com. And you can give value for value there. You can even stream this podcast on apps like Breeze and you can give Satoshi's value for value as you listen. Okay, don't go away. We'll be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destiny. Today's quote, it comes from Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon lived in the 1500s in France. He was very famous for creating the scientific method. It was one point called the Baconian method. Francis Bacon was a philosopher. He also worked in the library and created a, a library organization system. A uh, very famous uh, figure in history, influential figure in history. And he said this, it is a strange desire to seek power and lose liberty or 
to seek power over others and lose power over a man's self. Francis Bacon from his essay of Great Place. What Francis is talking about is as we seek to grow in power, as we seek to grow in influence, we seek to grow in fame, we exchange power for liberty. And it's a strange thing to want to give up liberty, liberty to give up our freedom in the exchange of power. And likewise, when we seek power over others, we lose power over ourselves. I was talking with a friend this week about why the, the progressive left is so good at organizing media and organizing these uh, strategies to persuasion strategies to change the minds of others on these topics like Israel versus Hamas. And we, we came to the conclusion, we came to the conclusion that by and large, an oversimplification of the matter is that the left thinks about groups where someone who sits more on the right thinks more about individuals. Those who are on the left think more about organizing and having power over groups and having a a big governmental structure to control the, the systems of society, where those who are on the right typically want to see a smaller government and want to see individuals have more personal liberties to control and take decisions for their own personal lives. So then when it comes down to these these media wars and propaganda wars between the two sides, the left is often more organized, one, because that's where their, their strengths lie in. They say, how can we organize a bunch of people together to have a narrative shape the way that people think? There's a quote by Balaji, who is an Indian entrepreneur who was, did a lot with blockchain and cryptocurrencies. He says that media scripts people as software scripts computers. And what that means is that the, the narratives that we believe, the narratives that we listen to, those scripts become control mechanisms within us. Those things that we believe, our our thoughts create our emotions, our emotion creates our actions. Those thoughts that we believe, those scripts, programs humanity. And what the left is so good at is writing those scripts through media to shape the way that people think. And we were talking about why is the left so good at this? Well, the left is so good at this because their goal is to control other people. The left's goal is for a big government, a big organization that controls all the systems, that controls every individual's life. Whereas on the right, people, those who are on the right, as Francis Bacon was saying, those on the white right, they want to have power over oneself. They want to be a, a person of of self-discipline, to have their own city walls over their life, to be control of their own thoughts, their own emotions, their own actions. And they're not so concerned about controlling other people's thoughts, emotions, and actions. And so if one group is more concerned about controlling other people, which is the left, and the other group is more concerned about controlling themselves, controlling your own world, your own actions, the things that are within your, your, your personal domain of society. Well, then, of course, the right will be more 
disorganized. Of course, the right will not have a strong, unified uh, media push in place to combat these things because that's not their objective. Their objective is actually quite the opposite. Their objective is, I want my own individual and personal liberties and I don't want to control you either. And that makes the right, that makes those who are more focused on their own personal worlds at prey and and at the ability to fall prey to the strategies on the left that are being used against them. So the solution is, the solution is, one, remember that social media is not the real world. And that's something that I, I have had to remind myself of this week as I, I got lost in multiple conversations on my phone with people, multiple conversations. And I had to remind myself that th- this isn't the real world. The way that I'm interacting with these, with these thought contagions that are out there in this social media world where you're triggered by these dopamine hits, which are reprogramming, re-scripting our minds and the narratives that are going on, that's not the real world. And we have to pull our eyes away from those, those black holes of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat. And we have to get back in front of people's faces to interact and engage with people face-to-face. And the second tool to guard ourselves is, of course, being aware that these strategies are out there. And two, raising ourselves up as individuals, individuals who are able to control ourselves And having our arguments, having our defenses, having our knowledge, our factual knowledge of history, of the world, of the things that we care about, already embedded so that we're able to defend ourselves, so that we're able to be reasonable, that we're able to be open to reason, that we're able to be people who make peace. You and I, we want to be people who make peace who find that middle ground. And that's why I was pushing, even this last episode, episode 224, I was pushing, let's make peace. Let's find, let's be a way that we're accepting and embracing radical reconciliation. And the amount of hate that and, and disagreement that I received from saying, hey, maybe we should reconcile. Maybe we should look to trying to find a way to create reconciliation, which means both sides have to acknowledge one another, that both sides have to admit that they're wrong. That if each side took responsibility for themselves, rather than trying to control the other person, maybe, maybe we could find a solution. And that goes beyond things that we can't control, like the conflict between Hamas and Israel. And it goes to things that we can control, like our relationships in our life, the way that we deal with our mind, the way that we deal with our time, the way that we deal with our children and our our husbands or wives, and that we deal with our family and our enemies around us. If we can build bridges with our enemies in our life, then our life, the quality of the world that we live in that actually impacts us, not what's happening somewhere else in the world, even if it's a couple nations away, then our world and by proxy, the world will become a better place. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, please 
buy my book, Anchor the Discipline to Stop Drifting. I wrote this book at a time of my life where everything was drifting. My, my proxies, my algorithm for life was all broken. And so I wrote this as a manifesto to myself to help focus my the drive of my life. So I was doing the right actions, committing myself to the right goals rather than being tossed by the wind, being double-minded in everything that I did. Go out this week and be like Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon was someone who pursued the truth, who sought to uncover truth, and he did it. He did it by seeking to control and master his own self. So go out this week and own your future. <laughs>